Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Good morning. I was just thinking um, this morning coming in how affected we are by this little star called the sun. We should be wearing shorts and tank tops by April, right? And uh, at least the youth group students should be. But even they are bundled up a little, which tells me you can always tell how cold it is outside by looking at the junior high students in your church. And if they're not wearing shorts, it's cold. And yet I wonder how long we can go being used to the coldness of God's absence and not feel as badly as we do when winter goes longer. Than it should. And let the sun peek out just for an hour and our mood instantly lightens. And do you know that when God shows up in our lives that way, it's the exact same effect? That it's like it's been freezing and dark and all of a sudden it's warm again and it's bright again. And if you haven't experienced God that way in a long time, that needs to be what you pray until it happens. Because it's really hard to keep trudging along in the winter of God not being around in your life. So I want to encourage you, even though the weather is terrible, the presence of God can warm your heart. And just keep that in mind as we continue. If you are new to our church, the man talking in front of you, my name is Dave. Um, I have the privilege of serving as lead pastor here, and I've been working through a long series studying the the first letter of Paul to Timothy, his spiritual son. And the title of the series has been Life on Life. We're looking at the way that Christianity has always advanced as people make a spiritual investment in the lives of others. I I truly hope that you've grown personally through the series. Um, You may not know this, but as preachers prepare and study and write sermons as we deliver them, Sometimes, even as the words are escaping our mouths, we are growing as well. That, to me, is living proof that sermons are not just speeches written by men, but God speaks so much so that even while the words are coming out of my own mouth, my heart sometimes is shaken by what God is saying to all of us. I hope you don't receive that as some kind of backhanded compliment to myself. It's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying God... His word is alive, so much that even the one speaking it can receive it as coming from another. And I've called the series Life on Life for a reason, because even though we are growing, the intent of this entire series is not simply to have us be blessed and continue on our merry way, but that we would understand how important it is when we have laid hold of a relationship with Jesus Christ to give that away to somebody else as we pour our lives into the life of somebody else. I'll tell you why that matters so much right now. Because when you look around, if you've come from a very large church, this looks puny to you. But if you've come, the average church size in America is like right around 50 these days. That curve is massively thrown off by the 20,000 member churches that seem to be popping up everywhere. But the majority case is people are used to a church of around 50 people. So even a church of like 200 for some people feels overwhelming. 
Like, how do I get anchored here? How do I get to know anybody? And here's the truth. As our church grows numerically, it will stop growing spiritually unless each person who loves Jesus takes life-on-life ministry seriously. There was a time in our church's history when we were small enough that the pastors could do a lot of the heavy lifting. We ran around like chickens with our heads cut off, chasing everybody. And we would have lunch after lunch, coffee after coffee. And I think, by and large, there was a a successful era where the pastors were doing a lot of the life-on-life ministry. And there are many leaders now engaging with us in it. But if we don't all take this calling seriously, this church may keep growing numerically but it will stop growing spiritually. Do you understand? The way we're going to hold on to our spiritual vitality is by investing into one another and giving away this relationship we are enjoying with Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know if it's just a cold or you all stayed up too late at the clubs last night, but I, I got to just tell you, you guys look dead right now. Okay, I'm trying really hard to be engaging, but you're putting me to sleep. Come on. Are you guys at church? Are you born again? Did Jesus die for your sins? If I shoot you, are you going to go to heaven? I mean, is this a funeral? Jesus is alive. Never mind how cold it is. Or that tomorrow you go back to work. Today, Jesus is risen. Amen? All right. Thank you. So I want to close out the series. And the last time I did a long series on James, I felt like the sermon at the end of the series, the recap, It was thorough but tedious in that I basically gave you a massive fire hose into a shot glass retelling of the entire series. I've decided not to do that today. Small round of applause. (laughs) I'm not going to do that today. Instead, I want to give you some parting words, a focus on what I believe our next steps should be, and synthesize all the things that were said into three main things I want you to keep in mind as you take seriously this invitation to invest yourself into the spiritual life of another person. The first of those, by the way, the title of the message is Go Get a Life. And that's not a criticism. I'm not saying your life stinks. I mean, go out and get, you can't do life on life by yourself. So go out there and get a life to do life on life with. Okay. Um. That always works on every device in my house. If I just hit it, it starts working again. I feel like the funds. So life on life means a number of things, and this is what I want you to keep sharply in focus as you go about doing this in another person's life. The first thing is that life on life means exercising influence. Like it or not, at the end of the day, you're going to have to be an intentional influence on someone else. And I know, just having talked to so many of you, this is not something we're all comfortable with, Right? This idea that, what, you want me to influence someone else? Who am I? And I understand that it's intimidating to hear things like, God wants you to influence another human being. But I love the way that Paul opens this letter, and he says, I'm writing to Timothy, who is my true son in the faith. That opening right away tells us the kind of influence that we're talking about in Life on Life ministry is not some authoritarian, disciplinarian, headmaster of the private school kind of influence, but it's the kind of influence that a loving father should have on the son or daughter that he loves. It's the heart of a parent 
who adores their child and wants only the best for their kid. It's an influence marked by nurturing, by shaping, by empowering and refining. It is a very radically selfless kind of influence. And a lot of people feel like, I would love to do that for someone else, but I don't feel qualified. And I think that's okay to admit, that I'm not ready to stand in the place of spiritual authority or influence over any other person. I'm barely holding my own junk together today. And I get that. But here's what I want to challenge you with. You don't have to be perfect or on top of the heap to influence somebody. Every one of us right now sitting here is ahead of someone and behind somebody else. It's just how it goes. Every one of us is more mature than someone and less mature than someone else. The truth is that each of us has something to offer, something worth giving away spiritually, and that each of us also has someone already in our lives who is in need of that something that we can impart. You may not be at the top of the heap, but there's somebody in your life right now who needs what you already have. It's helpful to be humble and self-aware. Paul certainly knew where he stood with God and with other people. I mean, this is a pretty profound saying. It, it discouraged me a lot at first because Paul is a great guy. And he says, here's something you've got to believe. Jesus came to the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of all of them. I think Paul was aware that he didn't lead or teach out of a place of superiority. He always remained very aware that he was the guy guarding people's coats while people were stoning Stephen to death. Do you remember that scene in early part of Acts? As Stephen boldly preaches the gospel, others took large stones and threw them at his head until they killed him. And Paul was the guy guarding the coats so that they wouldn't get sweaty while they were murdering this man. Paul never forgot who he was without Jesus. He was always mindful that if you take away Jesus, I am the worst person in this room. Can we just say amen to that? Secret is every one of us is thinking, yeah, yeah. I'm the worst one here without Jesus. And the crazy thing is I'm up here speaking and I'm thinking the exact same thing about myself. You don't want to know how dark it gets in here and in here. And yet, though Paul was aware of just who he was without Jesus, he had a story of Jesus redeeming him, and it produced a deep and enduring humility. He never forgot who he was, but he also never forgot who Jesus had made him. And the humility and self-awareness did not keep him from helping others grow spiritually. I think that's the distinction between Paul and us. Many of us could say these words with Paul, but the result for us is often paralysis. I'm the worst person here, so I'm just not going to do anything. Paul says, don't believe for a second that that's true. You probably are the worst person in this room without Jesus, but with Jesus, there's no reason for you not to give away what you can to the people around you who are waiting. As we exercise influence over people's lives, here's another thing that you have to remember 
And when Paul opens his letter to Timothy, the very opening lines are a direct charge. Timothy, the church where I left you is a complete mess. You have to be the man of authority there. I'm leaving you there because you've got to open up a can on some people. You have to exercise authority. But look at what he says right away. By the fifth verse of this letter, he says, but the goal of all of this is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Here's a thing to always know when we're influencing others or when we are being influenced is that the only kind of influence God honors is influence driven by radical unselfishness and love. There are times when I'm so annoyed by the way a person's living, I just want to fix them or beat them up. Can you relate to that? You're just like, you are a chocolate mess, man. You are, everything you do is wrong and it's hurting other people and what is your stinking problem? And there are times when you just want to, seriously, cut it out. And when that's driving you, I can tell you that it's very unlikely that God will honor the influence you're trying to have on that person's life. For some of you, that person that frustrates you and in whose life you're totally ineffective are your own children. That's why you're banging your head going, why can't these kids ever? It's because at some point you're trying so hard to fix them. And you've forgotten just how deeply you love them. There has to be in all spiritual influence this driving engine of radically unselfish love. It isn't about you getting this off your chest. It isn't about you getting another notch on your belt. It's always got to be about you seeing another person and saying, I want nothing more than for you at the end of all of this to know Jesus better, to be stronger as a human being, to be more fully alive, who you're supposed to be. Everything about this investment is for you, not for me. I may benefit from it along the way, but that's not why I started with you. And all of us know when someone has tried to help us that within five seconds we can pick up, are you trying to help me or are you trying to help yourself through me? Do you know you can spot it right away when someone is trying to help you, but they don't really care about you? Do you know what I'm saying? And so when we try to do life on life, one of the things we have to keep in mind at all times is that the only way we're going to have an effective influence on someone else is when the heart of God has broken our hearts for theirs and we deeply, deeply love them. If you don't have that, remember what Paul wrote in his other letter to the church in Corinth? If you don't have love, then everything you say is like the sound of a resounding gong. Oh, how's that all day long? Anybody play that on their MP3 player all day long? That's an annoying sound. It's not pleasant. And when we don't have love, everything we say, no matter how biblical, no matter how good, how logical, how persuasive, it's received as, oh, gosh, please stop talking. Parents, have your kids ever looked at you with that face? Oh, yeah, yes, you're right. I will. Uh-huh. Please stop making sounds from your mouth. And the reason we're so frustrated, when we see that attitude, what do we do? Oh, yeah! I'm going to yell even louder. And what we're realizing is in their faces, we're seeing a mirror of our own hearts. I'm yelling at you, but right now I'm ticked at you. I don't love you. 
I don't even want you to be better. I just want you to lose this fight. I want to win. You're going to obey me. And as much as your heart is motivated ultimately by a desire for them to have a good life, that's not what's driving that encounter right now. And that's why it's not effective, because God's not in it anymore. You're influencing, but not in the way that he has ordained, which is always with a radical selflessness and love as this driving engine. I'll give you one last aspect of this um, exercise of spiritual influence, is that really the greatest influence we could ever exercise in anyone else's life is to pray earnestly and consistently on their behalf. I, I really think that we try too much, and by, by we, mainly I mean me, um, but probably some of you can sit in the backseat of this car. Um, I think we try to do too much by ourselves. My sin is that I try to do too much by talking. I, I have this idea that there's this like sort of undying optimism in me that if I'm cheerful enough, if I'm persuasive enough, if I talk about Jesus enough, you will want to see him. And it's not manipulation. I mean, I really live in that place most days. And yet, when I come to talk to you, if that's all it is, is me trying to say stuff about Jesus, I don't think it's going to get very far. I really think that we have the greatest impact on people who we're praying the most for. That intercession is the highest form of influence spiritually. And I'm indicted by this. I am convicted by this. This is one area of my life where I admit to all of you, I want to grow so, so much more. Think about the person you love in your life who you've tried desperately to influence and who is rejecting all of that influence, leaving you feeling like the resounding gong. And ask yourself, have you really laid down on the floor, prone before God, with tears, with a pounding heart, perhaps even an empty belly, and just say, God, please, win the battle for this person's heart. Draw them closer to you. I have tried with everything in my power, and I cannot heal their heart. The greatest influence we have in any other person's life really is found in that place of prayer. And I really want to grow in this. I hope my wife will relentlessly hold me accountable to what I just said. She already does, but add that to the whole bag of things that you have to keep me accountable for. And I hope you will too. Uh, Let me give you another observation to keep in mind as you do life on life with people. And that is that life on life means getting personal. One of my least favorite places in the world is King Spa. I hate it because I go there with people I don't really want to be naked with. And then when I went there one time, Mary Choi made me go to the room where they cook eggs. It's so hot inside that room. And I was so angry at her that I sinned in my heart against my sister. But that's, I I digress. The main reason I don't like King Spas, I don't think most of us enjoy exposure before others. I don't think that's a comfortable place for most of us. And when we do life on life, 
what I've seen is it's possible to walk with someone for 10 years and never really do anything significant in that relationship. Each of us have, we have people in our lives that we know, kind of, like drinking buddies, hey, all right, and it's been the same thing for 20 years. What's up, dude? Yeah. And it's like, that's it. <laughs> that's as deep as that pool has ever gone. And we say, yeah, I know you. I've got this good friend, this good buddy of mine who has been really nothing more than a buddy for two decades of my life. For the entirety of my adult life, I've known some people with whom there's no more depth than a fist bump and a glass of beer. And I think, wow. It's possible to walk a long time with very little impact in another person's life. You can log a thousand rounds of golf, 500 stakes, day after day on beaches all over the world and still find that it terrifies you to really be exposed before that person and to talk about anything that really matters to you. Here's the thing about the Christian faith. Paul reminds us that at the center of this thing we call Christianity is not people, but first and foremost, there is this God who laments the broken relationship he has with us because of our sin, and his whole heart is driven by a desire to bring people back to himself. He is as heartbroken over the lostness of people as we are. We're not the only ones bothered by the fact that some people will perish. God hates it. He is tormented by it. And his whole heart, his entire program for the human race is to make a way back to himself for those of us who have left him. And at the center of all of it is this Jesus who has done this great thing. Before we can talk about the church and about life on life, about other people, we must acknowledge that at the center of Christianity is Christ, who is the most important figure. And before we can engage in relationships with one another, we have to be mindful that the first and most important relationship of this faith is the one we have with him and how it brings us back to a God that we're separated from. And what's interesting is that it's not just that he is a sacrificial lamb who died to save us, but that at just the right time, Paul says to Timothy, at just the right time, Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords, but not everyone knows it yet. But at just the right time, every last creature in the universe will see. They will know that he was king of kings and lord of lords. And I say this because it's a reminder to us that the central battle of the Christian faith after you are saved is this question of whether you acknowledge Jesus as king or you try to replace him on the throne with yourself. I realize that the central struggle of every Christian's life is this issue of lordship. It's not about anything else. You could talk about my porn addiction or my relationship with money, but all of that ultimately rises out of your acknowledgement of who is really the king in your life. Lordship is the central question of Christianity. And that's really the place out of which every other spiritual issue in your life will come out. 
And if that's the truth, then it's in some of the most personal areas of our lives that we're going to see the truth of whether Jesus is king or Jesus is not. We could spend our whole lives assigning blame to every other person who broke us, to every other experience that leaves us somehow behind the bell curve. We can find reasons to explain everything that happened in our lives. But at some point, we have to deal with this central question. Is Jesus indeed truly the King of kings and the Lord of lords over my life? Beyond my testimony, is there any proof that this is really true? Because the fact of the matter is many professing Christians live helpless, futile lives where nobody's in charge, really. And chaos reigns. It's in some of these very personal areas that the truth of our spiritual condition and the truth of our relationship with Jesus really is told in a visible way. That's why Paul, in his letters, relentlessly goes after some of these very personal things. Places that, you know, you know how that that, that phrase we have in our culture, don't go there. Jesus didn't get the memo. He keeps going there all the time. And the people who do ministry in Jesus' name have learned that if that's where Jesus wants to go, that's where we eventually must go. Now, I'm not saying dispense with formalities. You have to do the hard work of laying a foundation of trust, of openness, of love. I'm not going to be like, hey, it's the first time meeting you. My name is Dave. Hey, let's talk about sex and money and um, all that. We don't do that. You have to do a little bit of prep work. But I know people have been doing that prep work for like 15 years, and you're like, are you eventually going to you know, do something? Do you ever see a UFC fight where you got two guys just doing this the whole time? This, you know, like somebody hits somebody. I, what am I watching? What am I watching? That's the way it feels sometimes to watch life on life happen in the church. All day long at the distance, just going, and you're like, oh, I'm not going to commit yet because I want the takedown move, the first tryout. I'm like, just slap him, something. Make some contact because this is frankly a waste of time. Yes. Pick a move, but eventually you've got to make one. You can't go three rounds waiting. Jesus most is visible in some of these areas that are most personal. And the reason they're personal to us, they're private to us, is because in that veil of privacy, we get to retain control of those things. As long as nobody else knows what's really going on, I can take care of things. You know how it is in some marriages where, where um, both spouses don't have a full awareness of what's going on with the money? Do you know what I'm talking about? This is, a lot of marriages I'm finding out are like this, where one spouse is like, I don't know. My spouse handles That's how it is in our house. I have no idea how much money we have. Jeannie could be embezzling and raising another family in some other state. I would have no clue she's doing that because she controls all the money I don't even look at it. I have access, but I don't use it. Just like the Bible, right? I have access, I don't use it. But there's like this sort of darkness there. <clears throat> Excuse me. And it's in those hidden places that if you want to get away with something, you can because nobody else knows. 
Why don't you want that other person to see? Because then the promise, don't worry about it, don't worry about it, I'm taking care of it, will be exposed for what it is. You're a big fat liar and your pants are on fire. You're in crisis, but you don't want to be seen for the crisis you're in. So you say, don't look, don't look, don't worry about it. Every time we're driven to guard something with zealous privacy, it's likely that lurking behind that desire for secrecy is something we're trying to hide that is better not hidden. Because that's the place where the real story of whether you have integrity, whether you have knelt before the lordship of Jesus, whether he is in control of your life, those things are seen in things like your relationship with substances and alcohol, in things like your relationship with money, or the way you treat your family, or the way you manage your temper. All of those things were dealt with in very raw terms in this letter to Timothy. Paul doesn't pull any punches. He goes, you know what? Let's talk about all the things no one wants to talk about. Let's talk about money, family matters, your temper, your drinking. And we like to say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Who is you to talk to me about this? When we're offended, we lose our ability to speak good English. But who is you to... And the truth is, look, it's not just them. The question is, can anyone be the voice of Jesus in this area which you're trying so hard to protect from the scrutiny of others. Why is the privacy so needed? You know, couples that I do premarital counseling with who are having sex like rabbits, they're troubled by it, they're like, oh, we hate that we do this. I say, I got an easy fix for you. Don't ever be alone together until your wedding day. What do you need all that privacy for? It's in the privacy that all that happens because nobody's slamming their lover on the table at Starbucks, right? I mean, it's, it's, like, it's like, look, I'm going to need the privacy so that I can get away with that which nobody else should see. Do you get what I'm saying? Think about your own heart and those areas of your life where you're like, oh gosh, no, no, don't, let's not, I don't want to, I know it's really raw, but why are you guarding it so zealously and why can't anybody talk to you about that? Even when Paul directly talks to people about their love of money, what he says is, my whole goal is not to mess with you, it is simply to tell you, I'm trying to avoid the great pain that comes to people who don't wake up to this. I'm not trying to manipulate your life, control your life, get in your private business. What I'm saying is there are consequences for wandering from the Lord. And if I'm going to do life on life with you, I can't justify being in relationship with you for 10 years and never going to those darker private places. What is the value of a relationship that stays above the water forever? When most of what really affects me happens under the surface. Some of us, I'm just going to challenge you with this, are entirely too private. We have raised our fences far too high and far too out. And I really believe what God wants to say to us is, you're not just keeping people out, but ultimately it's very possible you're keeping Jesus out of your life. Let me give you one last 
thing to keep in mind as you do life on life. That is that it's bringing freedom. In Matthew 23, Jesus offers this really scathing um, indictment against the Pharisees. He says, so practice, so here, here's what he says to them. These religious leaders, they are legitimately authorized to lead you. So listen to what they say when they interpret the Bible. Just don't follow their example. Because they don't practice what they teach. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. The reason that Jesus had such a difficult time with the Pharisees is because every time they got involved with people, the effect was that those people felt crushed under an unbearable weight of religious burden. That when Pharisees entered a person's life, there was never a freedom they experienced, never a true enjoyment of the gifts of life, never a lightening of the spirit. There was always this, oh. People would walk away from an hour with the the Pharisees feeling worse about themselves all the time, feeling hopeless, feeling weaker than when they walked into the room. What I love about Paul and about Jesus is that even when they mess with the most personal things, their motivation is so that they may experience true life. Aren't those beautiful words? Paul says, even in this direct confrontation about the love of money, where you're confronting those who are wealthy but hoarding it for themselves, he says, tell them to let go of their money a little bit, to weaken their grip over their wealth, because if they do it, then they're going to have a great future, and experience life that is truly life. That echoes Jesus' own words in his own testimony about what his main mission was among humanity. It was to save people so that in that encounter with him, we would come and go freely, finding good pastures, and have a full and rich and satisfying life. Now, I can tell you, I grew up under the influence of some spiritual leaders who didn't have that effect on me. That encounter after encounter, I just got beat down. And I'm aware that I do that to people sometimes too. But a good reminder for us is that when we do life on life, one of the ways that we know it's working is that the person we're influencing says that I feel a real sense of freedom and lightness has come over my heart. Do you remember in 1 Timothy 4, we're talking about every good thing comes from God and that it can be a blessing if we savor it. If we take our time, we slow down and receive everything God gives us. One of the things we do in Life on Life is to teach people not just to be religious, but to be alive to learn how to find the love of God even in the taste of a good steak or in the joy of just watching a good movie or having a conversation with an old friend. In everything we experience, rather than simply stopping at the experience of pleasure, we're teaching one another to find God in the midst of it, to say that the gift is wonderful, but the giver is even better that I'm discovering that even as I enjoy this, I'm amazed that there's a God who loves me enough to put such things in my life.
I'll end it here. Look, Tuesday, I'm going to leave for a two-week overseas trip. Uh, Ed's going to meet me in Turkey. And uh, Turkey sounds like such a harmless country, doesn't it? But, man, there's a a rising um, sense of alarm and concern about that country. There are escalating warnings from the U.S. State Department. All Americans, please don't go there, and yet we're going to go there. And, uh, you know, we're going to try to be wise. We're not going to go to public places, no touristy things. But it's still a place where ISIS is killing people with bombs. And so we would definitely, Ed and I, very much appreciate your prayers. Um, Prayers for safety and fruitfulness, also for the wisdom to rebook our flights before we get there if we need to. But the reason I'm saying all that is it's possible. I hope not, but it's possible. This is the last time I preached to you. Uh, I took that very seriously. I, I wrote this whole death instruction manual for Jeannie. If I don't come home from this trip, here's where all the money is and the insurance stuff. She knows where all the cash is. I know where all the real money is. <clears throat> and here's how to access it. Here's what I want you to do with it. Here's, if I were watching over your shoulder, what I would say to you as your husband from beyond the grave, do this, don't do that. Get married again, it's okay. I don't, you know. <laughs> and it's just these, these instructions realizing, maybe this, this is the last thing I'm going to say to you. And if it is, and if this is my last message at Harvest, let me just implore you with these words. Don't ever stop pursuing a relationship with Jesus. Don't ever stop. Don't let any frustration, any hindrance stop you. Keep chasing Jesus Christ until he catches you. You will be the most alive when you're walking with Jesus heart to heart. You will feel most like yourself when you're in a right place with Jesus Christ. And when you have found that place and you have laid hold of Jesus, I implore you, lay hold of someone else's life and give away whatever you can. You don't have to search far and wide to find that person. I guarantee you that person's already in your life. It's someone you care about. It's someone who, if you paid attention to their soul, their soul would grow. They're already there. The invitation is take that invitation seriously. For the entirety of this series, we've used this image to symbolize what life on life looks like. I like this picture because it's two guys on a tandem bike, meaning they're working very hard individually, but they're also working together. And when they do so, they go in the same direction in unity. Here's what I think Christianity looks more like for most people. I don't know if you can see it, but that guy's riding a tandem bike by himself. And he is a professional mountain biker, so he's got ginormous thighs. He can pull it off. And if you work really hard, you can go solo for a while. But that's not the way it was supposed to be. It wasn't how it was designed. And I wonder if for so many Christians, the reason it's so hard to keep going is because that's what we're doing. That a journey designed for two is being attempted on our own. And we're shutting people out. And we're not letting other people in. And I want to encourage you. Because when we do life on life, the really great thing that happens is not that we get to know someone, but that Jesus powerfully moves into another life. The greatest gift we have to give each other 
is the relationship we have with Jesus Christ. It's a better gift than money or good advice. The greatest gift we can give each other is the remembrance that Jesus is very much alive, that he is the best thing in our lives, that apart from him there is no joy to be found in this messed up world. That conviction, that certainty is one of the greatest gifts we give each other. If you don't have it, you're going to struggle many days to even want to wake up in the morning and go about this business. But if you find Jesus this way, it's like black and white television just became color and 4K and ultra. It's going to be like the sun came up and you're going to feel right about yourself and about life and about everything else. This is the great effect we can have on each other. And we're not going to find that apart from each other. That's why he gave us the church. So go get a life. Go find someone. And maybe for you, really, it's your very own kid. It's your girlfriend or boyfriend. It's your brother or your sister. But go and get a life. Find someone in whose life you can pour what God gave you. Why don't we just bow for a second in prayer? hope that what happens as we draw this series to a close is that God will lay on your heart another human being. Someone you actually love from the depths of your heart. And certainly what I'm not saying is that you're doing nothing for them spiritually. You probably are. But here's the invitation. Go to another level. Pour yourself out like a glass of wine being just poured out onto the ground. Just pour yourself out so that somebody else you love can keep moving forward in their spiritual life. And if someone is trying so hard to be that person to you, to minister to you, to assure you, to affirm you, stop raising the fences and shutting them out. Stop hiding in a cave of privacy because you're shutting more than just that person out. It's very likely you're shutting Jesus out. So whether it's about finding someone or letting someone in, let's just spend a moment just in quiet confession and reflection. Let God speak to us and then we'll sing and close our service. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.